coming right up is the Renewable Energy Hour. I'm Doug Livingston, and joining me as always is Alex Aragon. Hey, Alex, how are you? Hey, Doug. I'm doing all right. You're on drive home. You're you're on the road, so you're you're on a muffled cell phone connection. We'll we'll roll with it, but uh, glad you could make it. And uh, what what job are you working on today? Uh, I was doing an off grid system. Been working on it all week. Doing a major upgrade. Somebody's coming from uh, the old days where they had a lot of flashlights sitting around. It's a nice new modern system. <laughs> Bring them out of the dark. Bring them out of the dark ages, the the early days of off-grid solar. Um, yeah. So I'm on my way home, getting ready to take a shower and stuff, and thinking about how nice it would be to have all that extra power available that, uh, you know, the off-peak hours, the duck curve power. Uh, when people get home and they start using all the energy after the sun's already gone down, where's that going to come from? It would really be nice to have a big storage system. A big storage system or, or or that in a combination of way more solar and wind than we really need and combine that with some storage systems and some good transmission lines. And uh, we, have a, we have a guest tonight who uh, might address some of those storage issues that as we put more and more renewables on the grid become more and more important. Uh, Jim Fisk is an inventor, chief innovator, innovation officer for... Uh, for gravity power, um, and uh, he's uh, 30 years in technology, R&D, and commercialization, founded three venture-funded companies, led R&D efforts in fields ranging from high-speed digital electronics to electromechanical energy storage systems, won research grants from National Science Foundation, Department of Energy, Air Force Office of Scientific Research, and others. Uh, electrical engineering, computer science degree, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Jim, welcome to the Renewable Energy Hour. Hi, Doug. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. How, how did you get into this particular gravity storage uh, device that you're looking at for for storing power for off peak or for off off solar times on the grid? Well, it, it, it's a pretty long story, so I'll give you the the short version. Um, back in around 2007, I had a company working on uh, high-power flywheels for, for energy storage, a very different technology. Um, Who's that? Is that Alex? That was Alex. <laughs> uh, we'll keep going. I bet you he'll call back in. Yeah. Um, and flywheels are an interesting technology, that, but they're very deceiving they look in concept they're very simple but in order to get the, the most power uh, out of a flywheel you have to spin them very fast and mm-hmm. then things get pretty tricky potentially unstable uh, yeah well the stability is is controllable but the thing you can't get around is that uh, in order to get enough energy storage in a flywheel to make them anywhere near cost effective you have to spin them at close to the uh, the breaking point of the materials that you use in the rim of the flywheel. And that speed with with modern materials is uh, very, very fast. I mean, the tip speed on a carbon fiber flywheel is close to 1,000 meters per second. It's over 2,000 miles an hour. So um, 
a lot of effort went into making sure that the flywheel wouldn't kill people standing around the flywheel. Um, and as, as we get deep into it, we, we discovered that um, it, it was going to be expensive to make them safe. Um, and because they got expensive, there was never going to be any more than a niche market for, for flywheels. So we elected to shut that company down and give the money back to the venture investor. But about that time, I, I, um, I had been thinking a lot about energy storage in general. I learned a lot about energy storage through the flywheel business and started looking at other ways to solve the real problem, which is very large-scale energy storage. Um, if we're going to convert the grid to renewable energy, we're going to need truly massive amounts of energy storage. Um, and there aren't that many ways to store uh, store energy. There's really just a handful and one of the most attractive uh, looked to be gravitational potential energy. Well, they, they've, um, they've certainly been doing that for quite some time where the nuclear power plants during off-peak hours would pump water in Tennessee River Valley up back into the reservoir up uphill and, and use that for peak shaving the next day. That's a form of gravitational potential energy storage battery. Absolutely. Um, somewhere between 90 and 95% of the stationary energy storage in the world is still pumped hydro, yeah. which is which is gravitational potential mm-hmm. energy. But pumped hydro has um, issues that make it difficult to, to build more of it. Um, of course, you have to have the right geography for pumped hydro work. You need a high reservoir, you need a low reservoir. Um, and building those reservoirs takes uh, large amounts of land, usually several thousand acres, is involved in building a big pumped hydro plant. Um, and as a result of that, uh, very little pumped hydro has been built in anywhere except China over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, China doesn't... Um, it's not phased by environmental impact, let me put it that way. Um, Displacing three million people for the Three Rivers Dam project, yeah, what have you. Yeah, yeah, that, that sort of thing. But other places, I mean, there were two or three big pumped hydro pl- uh, plants planned for Germany that had to pass uh, local uh, approval. The local populace had to vote on them, and none of them came anywhere near close, anywhere close to getting enough uh, votes. Uh, to get the, the permissions required. So anyway, um, I started looking at other ways to do to use gravitational potential energy. And the, the first one I came up with was um, basically what amounts to a mine hoist. Um, steel cables, uh, big uh, hoist to, to lift large weights. Um, <clears throat> but Kind of like the old grandfather clock. Yeah, yeah, on on a very large on a scale. huge scale. Yeah, um, but uh, and and that looked like it might be viable, and so I um, worked on that for a while, patented the technology, um, but it was never completely satisfactory because there are a bunch of issues with it. The steel cables wear out, and if you use them a lot, they wear out rel- relatively quickly. Um, in order to get enough energy storage, you have to lift a lot of weight, and steel cables are only practical for lifting um, a, a few tens of 
tons of weight. And, and then you have to lift many, many, uh, iterations of, of that weight. I mean, you have to have a lot of weights at the bottom that you lift up to the top and you have to have someplace to put them. Then it gets very mechanically complex. Um, and anything that gets mechanically complex has lots of single points of failure. So the, the, the machinery is, is going to take a lot of maintenance. There's going to be quite a lot of downtime. Um, failures. Uh, it, it just it just had a lot of issues, and then I realized that uh, people have been lifting large things for a long time with a much simpler mechanism, and that's hydraulics. Um, <clears throat> so that quickly became very intriguing, and and soon after that, it was quite obvious that it was far superior to to, to doing anything with cables. Um, just just to, to give you a, a, a few numbers, um, a t- um, medium uh, altitude pumped hydro plant has maybe three to four hundred meters of head, right distance between the upper reservoir and the lower reservoir. Well, that equates to a little over five hundred pounds per square inch of pressure, and uh, with that much pressure. If you take a surface, as an example, take a, a, a round surface, a little over 50 meters in diameter. Well, with 500 PSI over an, an area that size, you can lift a million metric tons. If you increase that surface to a little over 80 meters in diameter and increase to, you know, 750 meters of head, which is um, kind of where a, a high head pumped hydro plant would be. Now you're lifting over 5 million metric tons. Um, lifting that much weight over a significant distance provides the kind of storage that we really need. Now we're talking gigawatt hours of storage. <clears throat> so we pretty, pretty much abandoned the cable approach. And, and that's what... That- that's what I was imagining your system was when Alex first mentioned your your company name. Yeah, was the cable cable and motor yep. and generator combo. Yeah, um, but it, it it became very clear that the hydraulic approach was far superior. So we we abandoned that approach. Um, started working on a de- on a design uh, to lift very large masses, and so the the system now uh, looks. Um, in concept, it's it's very simple. Um, it consists of a, a, a deep vertical shaft um, with a piston in the shaft that's half the depth of the shaft. Uh, the reason being that at, at half the depth of the shaft, you get the maximum amount of storage that you can get with a piston in a shaft. Um, and then <clears throat> a plain vanilla pumped hydro powerhouse using exactly the same equipment that people use in pumped hydro with a penstock that runs from the powerhouse down to the bottom of the, the main shaft and uh, another connection to the top of the shaft, and you fill it all up with water. Um, halfway down the shaft, there's a, set, a seal assembly that prevents high-pressure water from leaking around the piston. And then in operation, the pump turbine pumps water out of the top of the shaft forces it down the penstock under the piston, and hydraulic pressure elevates the piston. Um, 
to get energy back, you basically open the main valve to the turbine. Um, the piston pressure forces water down the shaft, back up through the penstock, through the turbine, spins the turbine, generates power exactly the same as in a pumped hydro plant. So the, the power equipment sees high-pressure water on one side, low-pressure water on the other side, and as far as it's concerned, it's a pumped hydro plant. Mm-hmm. The difference being we can put these in lots of places where you can't put pumped hydro. Um, we, we require a, a couple of percent of the land area that you require for, for pumped hydro, if not less. Um, we can put several gigawatt hours on a plot of land that's about five acres. Um, and that land can be perfectly flat as long as you get uh, good enough quality rock underground to support the structure, everything works fine. <clears throat> so that's kind of where we are with, with the system design now. I'd, I'd love to hear some more specific numbers. How how deep is your shaft and at half the, the well, length of the shaft? We've spent a lot of time talking to... Um, professional underground engineers, people who dig deep tunnels and shafts and um, looked at, at, at mine shafts that are already exist in the world. The, uh, the deepest single drop mine shafts in the world are a bit over 3,000 meters deep, straight shot. Um, <clears throat> but in talking to these underground engineers, uh, we learned that um, in general, you don't want don't, don't to go that deep. Below about a thousand meters, things start getting a little dicey unless you have really strong rock. Um, things happen like um, you dig out a shaft, and then as soon as you're done digging, the rock around the shaft starts swelling because you've released the pressure on the rock. Mm. Um, so we wanted to avoid those problems. So um, usually we're going to be between 500 and a thousand meters deep with a shaft. Um, Deeper is better um, because of basic physics. Just the energy storage is M- is MGH, mm-hmm. right? Mass times gravity times the height that you lift the mass. So that means if you double the depth of a shaft, it's twice get, the storage. You get double the mass, but you also get double the height. Ah, all right. So with modern excavation equipment the cost of excavating the shaft is pretty close to linear with depth. So if you double the shaft, you get twice the cost, but you get four times as much storage. All right. So that told us pretty early on, we want to go big. We want to get uh, as big as we can, because the bigger you get, the more cost-effective it gets. So, so with 500 to 1,000 meters. Go ahead. Um Shafts will be 500 to 1,000 meters deep, um, tending towards 1,000 meters as soon as we can get there. And anywhere from uh, 25 meters in, in and on. Uh, a big shaft is going to be between 50 and 100 meters in diameter. So we're talking about big shafts. 50 to 100 meters in diameter? Yeah. And a thousand meters deep. And a thousand yeah. meters deep, and and the 
the solid piston is you know half that 500 meters that's right um yeah and it's uh mostly concrete um it, it depends um there are two different ways to make the piston um the 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 obvious way is you excavate the shaft and then you build the piston inside the shaft of course it, it, that's the only place you can build it because once it's built it's not going anywhere yeah. except <laughs> up and down right um these these will be the largest objects ever lifted by human beings once they're constructed um and the way you make that piston is you you know you build the base plate of the, of the piston, which is reinforced concrete and steel, and then you slip form a shell for the piston and then fill it with uh, crushed rock and and cement. So that's that's the obvious way to make the piston. Um, a faster way to make the piston, if the ground is good enough quality, is you you excavate the top half of the shaft. And then you use what are called continuous mining machines or road headers to start excavating an annulus circle down the, the bottom half of the shaft. So basically what you're doing is you're carving out the piston from the rock that's in the ground. How do you cut off the bottom? Um, carefully. Carefully, <laughs> and and this would presumably have to be a granite or something like that. Yeah, you you want in order to do that, you need a good quality rock, uh, yeah. limestone. Um, uh, granite's pretty hard, but yeah. it's also very strong. But yeah, to 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 build the base plate, once you've got the the piston, the rock piston, you basically cut a tunnel through the bottom across the bottom of the piston, and then you build part of the shaft floor and the base plate inside that tunnel um, so that it's the base plate is uh, is becomes part of the bottom of the piston then you widen the tunnel and widen the base plate and then widen the tunnel again and then widen the base plate so you basically incrementally replace the bottom of the piston with uh, a reinforced shaft floor and a reinforced base plate for the piston so it's it's all pretty straightforward mm-hmm. and and the outer material is steel how do you get a good seal on on your on your piston because that's got to be um, crazy good seal yeah you you want a, a good a good sealing material so you once you have the uh once you have the piston carved out um you build a slip form around the base of that piston, and you build a reinforced concrete shell on the piston with the outer surface of that shell sheet steel. Sheet steel, all right. right. So, And you gradually pull that form up. Slip forming is used all over the place to build very large structures above ground, but it works just as well underground. Um, so you end up with a, what looks like a steel piston, but it's mostly rock. Mm-hmm. And, and what material do you do use to seal? Um, we basically use very large hydraulic seals. You know, hydraulic hydraulic cylinders operate at much higher pressures than than we need, mm-hmm. and they right. use polymer materials to provide the seal in in ordinary hydraulic cylinders. 
Um, we also use a, a polymer material. It turns out that you can extrude uh, the seal elements to pretty much whatever length that you want. Then you can field bond those elements together to make a seal, a round seal of whatever circumference is required. And, and that goes in, but well, the the piston's already there, so you got to build that around the piston, don't you? That's right. You have to build the seal base and the seal uh, housing um, at the, at the top of the piston, of course, before you build, fill the, fill it up with water. But the seal assembly itself is designed to be um, hoisted to the surface for inspection and for replacement of the seal elements. So. Uh, Sooner or later, the seals are going to wear out. Um, that That's almost the only wearing component in the entire system. So the system has to be designed so you can pull the seal assembly and replace those seal elements in a, a fairly uh, straightforward manner. Um, well, you, you have some wear and tear on, on the hydro turbine and the pumps. You just have to do the, the same, same, the same kind of wear out. that you'd see in a typical hydropower system. Yeah, yeah, and, and um, easily easily swapped out. That's right, right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, our hydropower equipment is is far more accessible than is than is frequently the case with hydropower or pumped hydro systems. Um, there's a big pumped hydro system in the center of California, the Helms pumped hydro system, and as with a lot of big pumped hydro systems, its powerhouse is a thousand feet underground. Um, so in order to build that powerhouse, they had to cut a, a tunnel um, at a fairly shallow angle that spiraled down to that powerhouse, and that tunnel had to be big enough for heavy trucks to carry the, the turbine equipment, and the turbine runner and the motor generator each weigh several hundred tons. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and, and how is yours more more accessible? You're... you're- going to potentially be a thousand meters down oh it's at the surface okay yeah yeah Uh, the the pump turbine needs to be uh far enough below the surface of the water in the main shaft uh to have enough back pressure to avoid cavitation Mm -hmm. cavitation would destroy the runner pretty quick so it in in practice it's going to be maybe 40 meters below the surface of the ground um but that's a direct shot with a with a big crane. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't thinking. I was still thinking in terms of pumped hydro, where the turbine has to be at the bottom. But yeah. you're generating yeah. the pressure with the weight and can send it through pipes back up to the surface. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so you, you we're talking a little bit about maintenance. I'd love to hear some comparison and contrast with the big elephant in the room, and that's battery chemical storage for the grid, which to me seems like it's just going to be ludicrously expensive and and an ongoing expense because you have to replace the batteries and they're so expensive. Uh, yeah, batteries have, have, have some important advantages, which is why they're being used so much. I mean, you can list a, a lot of the, the, the advantages. I, 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 would, one, I would guess they're quicker and, and have yes. a wider range of power dynamic, I mean, more or less That's power right. at on-demand. Uh, what That's else? Right. What other advantages? Oh. They're, they're, they exist. They exist. They're already there. <laughs> they exist. All right. um, they're well-developed. Um, they're produced in factories. Um, the, the problem, as you alluded to, is they, they, they wear out 
and if you use them heavily, which is what you what what they need the way they need to be used in a stationary energy storage system, mm-hmm. uh, they'll wear out in uh, ten fifteen years, something uh, on that order. You're being optimistic. Maybe. <laughs> I, guess, I guess it remains to be I, seen. I'm skeptical that they'll last that long used heavily. Um, yeah. Um, uh, but I think even even a bigger problem for, for batteries, at least at this stage, is, is materials, mm-hmm. material supplies. It's not entirely clear that there's going to be enough lithium available just for electric cars. Right, and I think electric cars are a critical aspect to our decarbonizing um so absolutely uh, so i would love to see alternatives for the grid and it's still hard for me to imagine the batteries we would need to take care of the problem uh, yeah as we put more and more solar and wind on the grid yeah um, um i guess another big advantage of batteries is if they are available you can build a battery plant uh you know a battery storage system much faster than you can build one of our systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, ours involve a lot of a lot of construction that will take um, three or four years of, of construction. But once once our system is built, hydropower systems last if they're properly maintained and cared for almost indefinitely. Yeah. There are hydropower systems in in active use today that are over a hundred years old. So, have you looked at you know long term you know per gigawatt hour cost between conventional lithium ion batteries and and your system in the long term in a in a hundred year analysis um, yeah we've done some pretty careful modeling um, again we we consulted with professional underground engineers to develop a construction plan uh, including the schedule and costs and uh then factor that into what's called levelized cost of storage, which takes into account capital cost, round-trip efficiency, maintenance costs, um, any other operating and, operating and maintenance costs, um, <clears throat> to produce a number that tells you what you need to sell the electricity for to make money. And our levelized cost, when you factor in all, all of those uh, different um, Numbers are somewhere around three times slower than 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 batteries. Yeah, they, I would have guessed. And, and and that's kind of at, in the early stages. Um, any big system like this, uh, any system in general, will get um, more cost effective, less expensive the more of them that you build. Just, right? this just is, because this you learn curve. learning curve, yeah. Exactly. The same kind of learning curve that you see in other big systems. Um, the more of them you make, the better you get at it. And I'm, I'm entirely convinced that, that there are technologies that are possible that will make excavation considerably less expensive once it becomes apparent that there's a, a need. I mean, nobody has built shafts this big. They've, built, um, they've dug holes much, much bigger than, than we're talking about. I mean, there's a copper mine right outside Salt Lake City that's much deeper. It's an open pit copper mine, and it's much deeper than our deepest shafts will be. And it's somewhere around three or four hundred times the volume of our largest shaft. 
the larger shaft we anticipate ever building. So, I mean, people people know how to dig big holes. They've been doing that for what a are some of the What are some of the uh, sites and, and uh, you know applications you'd see be best for this? Like somewhere paired with a large uh, solar, uh, you know, uh, commercial type solar system or wind generators or you know. What, what kind of near what near any decent transmission line with good rock? <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Um, those are those are the well. In in general, in order to make the the grid eighty um, percent or more renewable energy, we're going to need something on the order of five terawatt hours of energy storage just in the United States, um, and so. Um, all, virtually almost all of the solar, big industrial solar farms being built in California now are being built with storage. Um, some numbers just came out in the last few days um, showing that there are almost no solar facilities being built anymore without storage. Wow. They're, I hadn't realized we're talking that. About, we're talking about lithium battery storage typically? It, that's what they're usually building now. And, and usually when they use battery storage, it's maybe one or two hours of storage. Um, but if we're going to go to full, fully renewable, we need storage that will carry the grid overnight. Yep. You know, we need 12 to 16 hours of storage, not one or two hours of storage. Mm-hmm. They're just, they're um, just peak shaving off the expensive evening power, that, that duck curve that Alex was talking about. Exactly. The lo- low hanging fruit. Um, but without the storage, the incremental value of new solar in places like California is approaching zero. Yep, yep. Right? I mean, in the middle of the day when the, sol- when the sun is strongest, there's so much uh, electricity being pr- produced by solar that they don't have any place to put it yep. anymore. Yep. So building new solar plants without storage makes, makes no sense. They, 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 they won't be profitable at all. So I think um, pretty much everybody understands that we need uh, massive storage. So what about uh, throttling these things, or you know, making it so they're putting out different amounts of energy? Is that uh, is that adjustable, fully controllable, or is it just kind of you let the piston go? You're just changing a valve opening, aren't you? Um, on the power generation, um, the the uh, wicket gates on the turbine. Uh, control the amount of power, um, and and so the output power is is fairly throttleable. Um, there are, there are limitations to how far you can throttle down in a simple synchronous turbine, um, but there are other designs that you can use that increase the throttleability on both the the output and when you're storing energy as well. So with a simple synchronous turbine, there, there is a big restriction with pumped hydro, and that is, that is that if you have, for example, a 300-megawatt pump turbine um, and you want to store energy, you can only store energy if you've got 300 megawatts to drive the motor, mm-hmm. right, And which is, which is a, big, a big constraint. But if you make it uh, variable speed, pump turbine, you, you can throttle it on to some degree on both storing and generating. And there's another design called the hydraulic short circuit where you have a separate pump and a separate turbine 
with a hydraulic feedback loop that allows you to throttle all the way from full power charging to full power generating. Uh, how does so that? You have a lot of throttle. How does that work, or should I ask? Um, it, it's it, basically you're using some of the um, pressure from the water on the output to feed back to drive the pump. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's by changing the throttle, the uh, valve settings, you can d- determine how much water is, co- how much electricity is coming out of the system and how much water is getting fed back through the loop. <clears throat> I mean, to see that. So that, that <laughs> uh, goes a long way towards circumventing the, the throttling issues. And, uh, not that it matters that much to me uh, if where the cost, the levelized costs are so much more competitive than batteries, but how, do, how does the round-robin efficiency of your system compare to you know, a typical lithium-ion battery bank with inverter? Well, um, I, I don't have really solid information on, on what the true efficiency of a battery power plant is. Um, I've seen some test results that indicate... Um, that the true round trip efficiency may be lower than eighty percent, um, but other people have told me that the the, the, the bigger plants are are, some, are more efficient than that. So I, I'm not a good source of information okay, on the true down. round trip efficiency yeah. for batteries. Well, how about your system? Um, our our system uh, with a big uh, big turbine, a big pump turbine. We'll get about eighty-four percent round trip efficiency. Okay, so pretty competitive. Yeah, about yeah, I mean, off-grid uh, lead acid. Yeah, well, you got to take into account the inefficiency of the charger if you're going from AC or uh, yeah. or the latent draw of your charge controller if you're coming straight from DC solar or and the inefficiency of the inverter. That's all part of the round trip inefficiencies. That's right. That's right, and any ancillary equipment, yeah, line losses, batteries, transformers, and the like, and and in some cases, heating or cooling. Um, ah. batteries don't like running at really high temperatures. Mm-hmm. In fact, it, it can be dangerous to yeah. get them at high temperatures. So, a, a complete battery system, um, it, particularly if it's in a location where the temp, the outside temperatures get fairly high, needs cooling. And the more you use it, the more it needs cooling. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, you have to look at, at you know, the, the black, box round, black box round trip efficiency, mm-hmm. where everything is inside the box is, uh, is what's related to your system, not just the batteries. It's everything around the batteries as well. All right. And the same for our system. I can't help but notice we we keep getting phone calls. Do you feel like hey, G- letting the listeners join? You? Go ahead, Alex. Hey, yeah. Hey, Jim. Why don't you uh, put out your website there so people can check out what we're talking about if they want ah, to get a visual aid to key this. point. Yeah, it's www.gravitypower.net. Uh, Gravitypower.net. You nobody nobody had that URL yet, huh? <laughs> Well, here we have another call. I'm going to open up the phone lines and see what our listeners have to say or ask. Hello, caller. You're live on the Renewable Energy Hour. Hey, thank you for my favorite topic, uh, battery-free storage system. 
Battery-free. Well, this is a battery. It's just not a chemical <laughs> yeah, battery. Actually, it's a good comparison, too. I love all the uh, comparisons there. Um, back to uh, the, the first topic regarding the gravity part of it. Um, I, I'm hoping that the, uh, your, your guest has a scaled-down prototype of what he has in mind. Uh, no, we talked about this beforehand. Uh, yeah. It's never going small enough for, for an off-grid home. Yeah, it just uh, it sounds far out. I, I you know, I, I trust and believe that there, there's something there, but I, I hope that something way scaled back from going down to thousands of feet and these giant pistons and, and unproved technology yeah, uh, can, can be proven. I, there's there's a, a um, it, it really needs to be peer reviewed, and, and to do that, some prototype. Small-scale prototypes need to be well, displayed there. The Jim, you have done some some small-scale prototypes, right? We we built a, a a little demonstration unit in the laboratory. It was about two meters tall. Um, I mean, you can build these things at, at any scale, from from desktop to bigger than what we're talking about, and they all work on the same principle. It's just they're not yeah, cost-effective. I'm, I'm going to jump in there a little bit. The economy of scale plays in and engineering all the time. I love this topic. Thank you for bringing up all this very important information. At one point, I think I was maybe uh, caught. Uh, I, I, I may not have been paying attention, but we went from... Uh, uh, depth in meters to pounds per square inch. And, <laughs> and that went through because I thought I was hearing feet instead of meters. Yeah, we should have we should have been talking pascals. Anyway, it was a little confusing to me because I know a little bit about hydrology <laughs> I, and the difference between pounds. Yeah, I apologize for that. I did, I yeah, did give yeah, the so head in meters of head. Yeah. Hey, keep up the great work. I just I I, I think it's fantastic. Uh, I wish you the best of luck. Take take it easy and and. Uh, Work hard. All right. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Thank you. Um, so yeah, I, I, I meant to mention that I, I switching switching metrics in the middle, but I, I, I use metric all the time. But for pressure, pounds per square inch just is so much more familiar much to more the American in, public. In, yeah. All right. We'll get another call. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Yeah, hey, I had a question um, about this technology. Um, don't the British have something kind of similar where they have, like, large holding tanks or ponds or something? And I'm just wondering what kind of other inspiration maybe this was pulled from. Well, we did talk about pump storage near the beginning of the show, and people have been doing that for a long time. I missed it. Where, where they, yeah. where they, they yeah. take power from the grid during off-peak times, and they'll pump from a lower reservoir to an upper reservoir, and then during peak times or when there's the need, they'll let that water run back downhill through a hydro turbine. I expect the thing you're talking about in Britain is something along those lines. I think so, yeah. So, well, thank you for the subject. It really, it's very, 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 very interesting. Thank okay. So I'm, I was... Awesome. I was worried we were over-geeking for the uh, seven-in-the-evening <laughs> no. crowd. You can't geek yeah. out enough for yeah, well, us. This, this is the geek <laughs> hour between point and click in the Renewable Energy Hour on KZYX. <laughs> well, yeah, thank thanks again. <laughs> sure enough, thank you. There's a big plant in Wales. In Wales? In, in the U.K., yeah, called the Dinawake plant. Um, and that, that was built primarily for tea times. For tea time, um, oh god! Tea time. <laughs> Cultural um, peaks. Yeah, because what would happen wow. is that in the evening, 
everybody would be watching the same television program, and when they get to a break in the, break in the program, everybody would go and turn on their their microwave their, or what have you, or no, their their um, cheap teapot to make tea. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and the, the 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 power grid would go would go crazy. I mean, they, all of us people are sucking all this power all over the country. So this Dinowick plant, if I remember correctly, it's like um, eighteen hundred megawatts, and it's, it's set up so that <laughs> you you can you spin the turbines. That what they do is they spin the turbine in air, right? So it's synchronized, and then when they need the power, they can go from zero output to 1,800 megawatts in, like, 15 seconds. Wow. Just because everybody turned their tea kettles on on at the same time. Yeah, there's some cool videos, if you get on YouTube and look it up, um, that show show the the, the valve arm swinging, because that's that's basically what it it does. As soon as you open the valve, because the turbine is already spinning at synchronous frequency, it immediately starts making power. Mm. That's pretty cool. Right. We have a That's great. patient caller waiting in the wings. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Is that me? That's you. Great. Um, energy return on energy invested. Uh, well, in a sense, these aren't returning any energy. They're just storing it. So it's hard to well, put that measure well, in there. No, he, he, has, he has a good point. He has a good point. They're, they're the people at, at Stanford... I believe it's Stanford and or Berkeley have done a lot of work in this area and um, hydropower and pumped hydro are are pretty much outstanding in that category. It does take a fair amount of energy to build these things, but once you build them, I mean, they last many decades. And so you're... Yeah, just... you're... Go ahead. Um there's well and even beyond what they have done in the past um i think their their uh their numbers came from conventional hydropower systems in in our case because we're excavating in such a small area and primarily vertically our excavation equipment can be pretty much all electric which cuts the energy usage for, for construction even farther so these should be outstanding in terms of uh, energy returned over energy invested. And, and you're not uh, using 50 bazillion tons of cement to build a dam. That, that's another topic topic that's kind of um, gets kind of intricate. Um, we do use quite a we don't use as much as much concrete as they use in like you know, Three Gorges Dam or something like that. But we do use a fair amount of, of concrete to line the shaft and, and to fabricate the piston. There are a couple of opportunities here that we want to take advantage of over time. One is that depending on the type of rock that's being excavated for the shaft, in some cases that rock absorbs CO2. Uh, I think basalt is, is one example. So when that rock is removed from, from the shaft, um, if you, it, it's, it has to be crushed at, in order to be removed. If you spread that rock out on the ground, it just sits there and absorbs CO2 for a while. The other opportunity that we have is some of the new, um, new cement 
that are designed to use less CO2 or even to store CO2. So that, that's getting a little off the topic of mm-hmm. energy return over energy invested. It's getting more into the topic of carbon capture and storage. Well, they're, uh, they're related, but it does take a lot of energy to produce the cement. Uh, yeah, right. I, and I was when you talk about excavation, I was I was picturing uh, massive amounts of diesel. But you're saying electric is what this electricity is what these excavators run off of. The mining industry, like a lot of other industries, is converting quickly to electric power, and for for they have additional reasons why it's good to use electric power rather than diesel. In order to use diesel um, deep underground in a shaft or in a mine shaft, in a vertical shaft or a mine shaft, Oxygen. you have to have very good air handling equipment. Mm. Right? Otherwise, you suffocate everybody in the mine. Um, so there's, there's quite a lot of electric mining equipment now. And, of course, our vertical conveyor, which is the, the primary tool we use to remove the cuttings from the shaft, is electric-powered. And when you're making those comparisons to battery storage, lithium-ion battery storage, and you, you, were, you were doing basically a cost comparison, um, obviously embedded in that analysis are assumptions about how much power it takes and how much that power costs to make one system versus the other. I'd yes. just be curious to know a little bit about those assumptions. Um, we haven't done a detailed um, energy return over energy invested uh, analysis for our technology in specific. Um, but it will be very comparable to the calculations for hydropower, um, so you brought you brought up the subject. I think you're you're probably aware of some of those studies that have been done. No, actually, I'm not. I'm I'm really just asking from a layman's perspective and just trying to imagine um, one alternative versus the other. Um, yeah, not really yeah, knowing um, very much about how much power it takes to produce a battery versus one of your systems. Yeah, um, it, it, I would encourage you to, to do a little bit of, of, of looking around. I mean, if you just do a, little, a search on that uh, EROI, um, you'll find some pretty good art- articles, I think. IEEE Spectrum has some articles, and there's some good papers that came out of Stanford or Berkeley that talk about that. Batteries are terrible in that respect. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, batteries mostly uh, because they're so short-lived, you know, a decade. Yes. As, yes. Instead of many, many decades. Yes, they're better than they used to be. They used to be really terrible. Yeah. Uh, but they're still not comparable. I mean, they're they're far from something like um uh, um hydropower. In general, the geologic power systems are the best for energy returned over invested. Okay. Ge- it's if I could just ask one other question, Doug, I don't know how many other callers you have. But, um, we're stuck I, I, We're stuck with one available line, so you're it at the moment. Oh, okay. Um, well, I'll make it quick. But I'm just, I was just also trying to picture where you might put one of these things and what are the factors in addition to, you know, um, rock and so forth. Um, 
such as potentially seismic issues here in California. I mean, where 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 do you where are the best places to put these things other than, as Doug said, good rock and near a near a good transmission line. Um, one of the places that looks very attractive is uh, is obsolescent power plants, particularly coal-fired power plants. Um, the reason being they're brownfield, so they're relatively easy to permit. They already have transmission lines. They already have a workforce. Um, there are lots and lots of those. Um, I would not advocate putting these near a major fault. But in general, underground structures handle seismic motion much better than above-ground structures do. Yeah, and, and it's not – the risk with being near a fault is loss of your investment. It's not some catastrophic accident. That's right. That's right. Unlike hydropower and even pumped hydro, there's almost nothing that can happen with, with a gravity power plant that would endanger the, the public. Uh, it's it, if we built one of these things and and you didn't know where we built it and you drove up to it, you wouldn't know it's there. It's almost completely underground. There's almost nothing visible above ground. Um, the roof over the shaft, maybe, and maybe the roof over the powerhouse. Um, and we can build seismic isolation into the system to help it withstand earthquakes, uh, but it's not certainly not going to cause earthquakes. You have to remember that with, despite all the weight that we put into the shaft, the weight in the shaft will be less than the weight of the rock that we moved re- removed from the shaft to begin with. Mm-hmm. Going, going from three to five grams per cubic centimeter to one for half of it? Yep, exactly. Yep. So you'll be able to deliver a lot of... Uh, a lot of- uh, granite, <laughs> a lot of <laughs> aggregates as you do this excavation. Yeah, actually, in some places, the cuttings from the shaft will be a product. Ah, yeah, a crushed, saleable product, crushed granite or whatnot. Yeah, well, yeah, people stone. people make money by running quarries, so you know, part of this yeah. could be offset by that. Yes, yeah, in some places. And, and in some places, um, the cuttings could be used um, to um, extend land for landfill to create new land, or or build seawalls. Yes, <laughs> hey, we're going to need a lot of. Hey, caller, I'm going to open up this line. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Thanks for your answer. Bye bye. Mm-hmm. And I never gave the phone number. We've got time for one or maybe two calls left. Uh, 895-2448 if you want to get in on the end of the conversation. Once again, it's uh, www.gravity.net. Gravitypower.net. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Okay. Um, a late one, but... I was interested when he said there's deeper holes in some mines, open pit mines. I'm building it in the big hole that's already there and have a shaft that, you know, just build it there and not have to dig all the way down. Well, he needs, he needs, uh, tight walls on the, on the outside of the shaft. And these are well, maybe, way too big. Maybe big. 
Okay, you you have to have you have to make a a big 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 round thing to right to contain it. Well, but yeah. he that that is a good point. I mean, one of the things that we've thought about is if you use an open pit line for the top half of the shaft. And then uh-huh. in the bottom of the open pit mine, ex- excavate the piston. That would That's save a pressure, lot of excavation. Right? And yeah. then your seal assembly would be sitting basically at, at at the bottom of the open pit mine, but at the top of where the piston is. But you'd also have to yeah. build a circular tower in you'd the have hole. To build, you'd have to build some support mechanisms to keep to prevent the piston from falling over. <laughs> Well, but that's that, that's all. And containment for the water. I guess the water doesn't have to be there, does it? You, no, you have to. You, you'd have to have more, a lot more water because you'd have to fill up the open pit with. Oh, water. I see. I see. Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. okay. That's okay. A, that that that's a thought. Although there aren't very there aren't very many of those around, and they tend to be uh, being used for other purposes at the moment. That's right. And when they're done with them, they're <laughs> usually pretty skanky with. Uh, yeah, and so we haven't we haven't focused on things like that because the goal was always to make a general solution, something that you could build almost anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You know, people have talked to us, asked a lot about can you use existing mine shafts? Well, there are some cases where existing mine shafts might make a lot of sense. Like, for example, if you have a coal mine that has a long vertical shaft with a big uh-huh. cavern at the bottom of the shaft. That might actually save us a lot of money because we can take that vertical shaft and ream it out to be much larger, and the cuttings you just take and shove them into the cave at the bottom of the shaft. <laughs> but again, okay. that's not a general solution. That's a, that's a specific case. Yeah. Right. So we want to keep it as yeah. broadly applicable as possible, so you can have yeah. it anywhere and everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, you'd have to re- reinvent the wheel as you go doing different holes. Different mind, different mind problems. That's right. Yeah, and, and okay. our goal is 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 to um, gravitate towards a standard design. I, I think Doug mentioned something about standardization early on, um, so that we can order standardized equipment and use standardized procedures. Um, one of the things about hydropower is that every hydropower system is a one-off design. Right, because you've got mm-hmm. unique geography and produces unique power outputs and water flows and heads. And so when you build a hydropower or pumped hydro system, you custom order the power equipment for that particular system. But we can get minute. to a... Say again? We're down to the last minute. Oh. Yep. yep. And, yeah, hey, thanks I'm for the call, Tyler. Yeah. Um, the point being, if if you can standardize on a power plant design, there's the potential to have serial production of identical power equipment, mm-hmm. which will bring the cost of the power Way equipment down. down as well. Yeah. So, in our last minute here, uh, what sort of investors have you got, or who who are you expecting to be your investors? Well, early on, um, we, we had the fortune, the good fortune of getting an investment from a guy named David Gelbaum who was a, a great American, um, he, he gave lots, of, lots and lots of money to very good causes, but he has since passed away. And, and so 
we are not getting any more investment from him. So we're we're looking for venture capital or strategic partners or um, anyone that can help with the. And with you've got information capital. or links uh, along those lines and info on your website. Yes, yes. For that, we do. all right. Well. Jim Fisk, thank you very much for joining us. This has been fascinating, and I'm going to be following you. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much, Doug. This was fun. Gravitypower.net. Thanks, Alex. We'll be saying goodnight and putting on some music for Jamie Roberts to come in after, and uh, we'll see you or hear you in two weeks. Good night, everybody. Good night. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. Thank you.